Hello, I'm Jill Baker and would like to welcome you to Hempson's series of podcasts which look at welfare cases in the Court of Protection. These podcasts are intended for social care providers. To give you a little bit of background, Hempson's are leading health, social care and charity lawyers who work very closely with social care providers on the full range of legal issues they face. I'm now going to pass you over to our two experts, Rachel Hawkins and Liz Stokes, who are both members of Hempson's Health and Social Care Advisory Team and are very experienced on working on court protection welfare matters. Hi Jill, thank you. So the social care sector often plays an understated role in welfare cases. So in this series, which covers a course of six episodes, the aim is to take you through the basics of court protection welfare matters and delve into areas where providers are likely to be involved, what they should consider and how they can prepare. This episode is the fifth and penultimate of the series and will be an overview discussion looking at Section 21A challenges in the Court of Protection. So, so I suppose... I guess, yeah, so Rachel, I guess <laughs> the first question really is, what is a Section 21A challenge? Yeah, exactly. So broadly, Section 21A relates to Section 21A of the Mental Capacity Act 2005, which I'm sure all social care providers are familiar of, but they might not be very familiar with what Section 21A actually breaks it down to. So the easiest way to describe it is that they relate to challenges where you've got your individual who in previous episodes we've referred to as P, which is how they're coined in court protection cases, where they're deprived of their liberty in either a care home or a hospital. So a standard authorisation applies. P has the right to have such arrangements reviewed. So they have the right to question the circumstances upon which they're deprived of their liberty and their care arrangements. And that review is either done by a court or a tribunal. Here we're looking at deprivations of liberty in care homes relating to social care providers. So it would fall to the Court of Protection to be that body, the judicial body that scrutinises the arrangements and sees whether or not the qualifying criteria for Section 21A challenges are met. So my understanding is that an application is made under Section 21A challenge when, when P is objecting to their deprivation of liberty or their care arrangements that are in place at the current time. What what sort of, what do you mean by objection? How would that be realised? Mm. How is that recognised? Yeah, so the key there is definitely the word objection and the most common way that we would see it, and I know both ourselves have got cases dealing with this, a very common basis for an objection is somebody asking to go back home or saying that they object in a sense to living in the care home, that they want to return to a family home or they want to live in a different type of um, accommodation model. So the objection, it can be wide. As long as it's relating to the deprivation of liberty, the objection would be very personable to that individual. But the main basis for objection would be not wanting to reside where they are or wanting to change the care that they're receiving. And often the only way that the care can be changed is if they're in a different environment. So again, as I said before, the most common one is an individual wanting to live with a family member or returning to what they recalled as being the family home, for example, with a spouse. But their care needs are such that a 24-hour package of care, for example, can't be provided in the community, hence why actually their needs are better met in a care home. But that's all part of what would need to be explored through a Section 21A challenge. OK, so we have um, a situation where someone's in a, uh, an environment where they're subject to a deprivation of liberty, liberty. They're objecting to their care arrangements or they're making a request to go home. Who would bring that challenge on behalf of an individual? Mm. So depending on whether or not they've got capacity, P could actually bring that challenge themselves. 
more often than not, because they're deprived of their liberty and to be deprived of your liberty, you're either unwilling or unable to consent to such arrangements. It often means that the individual lacks capacity. So it's somebody acting on their behalf who would bring the challenge. And most commonly, that would be their relevant person's representative or an advocate. And the process which will follow is that they would then instruct solicitors and they would almost be the go between between a legal team and the individual to ascertain wishes and feelings of the individual and bring about a challenge which reflects the views that the individual has expressed. Who would be the other parties then in a, in a court application like that? Presumably you have P at the centre of the application. Yeah. Um, and who else would be involved or likely you, involved? Yeah, so it depends on the circumstances of the case, but likely you would have P as an individual and then whoever is representing them. So say that could be their RPR, which in turn could lead to an instruction to the official solicitor to act as a litigation friend. They'll become a party sitting with P as an individual in their own right. And then you would have what are termed as respondents. So they're people who would respond to the application by way of having to respond to information provision to see whether or not the criteria has been met. They're most commonly the commissioners. So it could be an ICB if they fully fund CHC, or it could be a mixture. It could be the local authority of supervisory body because they put standard authorisation in place, or it could be the local authority as a joint commissioner as well as supervisory body. You, If it's a trust case where you've got an individual who is subject to an authorisation in a hospital placement but is looking for a discharge, and it could be that discharge arrangements are disputed, where, for example, P might want to go to a certain placement, but the clinical discharge team and commissioners feel it's not in their best interest and they say that they should go somewhere else, then the hospital trust could also be a party to proceedings as well. Obviously, the more parties to proceedings you have, the more the costs increase. So you, the court would expect the uh, proportionate approach and pragmatic stance is to not having too many public bodies. But if somebody has got a vital role and they're very much heavily involved, then they should also be joined. But fundamentally, it will be commissioners and those delivering care, as well as P themselves. As we've discussed in previous episodes, it's very, very rare for a social care provider themselves to be joined as a party, but they're very much so captured in information provision we've looked at before. So I was going to say, we've mentioned before that it's it's usually the social care providers become involved at the request of one of the parties to provide information or to, mm. to, to provide updated um, disclosure or, or information around P. Um, and, and you've talked about different parties. There's also family members that are often involved as parties as well sometimes yeah. as well, aren't there? Yeah, so that's, that's a very good that. point. Certainly, um, if you have um, a spouse or a sibling, for example, who isn't in a role of um, like a representative or anything, but is very heavily involved and wants to make sure that they have their wishes and feelings formally recognised, then they should be invited to be a party to proceedings as well. OK, so we've got parties and we've got an objection. The proceedings have been issued. How are these challenges progressed within the courts? Mm. So the point of Section 21A challenges is meant to be that it's a very quick review. They're not meant to take a long time. They're meant to be very focused and look at the stipulated criteria. So within that, you'll see that um, there'll be an initial directions set, which fundamentally requires the exchange of evidence between the parties to proceedings. And the first piece of the most important evidence is from the commissioner. 
So again, if it's a CHC funded individual, then that'd be a statement from the ICB. Or if it is a local authority funded individual, the local authority will provide the statement. And that statement would set out information on the individual's needs, their current accommodation, basis of the objection, and then what's known as a balance sheet analysis. And that would include very much in the tabular format, the pros and cons to them staying where they are, and also all the different other types of options, which the commissioner has explored to try and satisfy the objection that's been brought. And once sufficient evidence has been exchanged, and that could form multiple witness statements, it could include RTMs, it should be a very fluid process, which could involve assessments and different social care providers. But once you've done, all the parties have done that information gathering, then you'd have an RTM, so a roundtable meeting, at which the aim is to try and get a consensus on best interests. If a consensus can be reached, then that's put forward to the court for them to sign off on. If not, then the court would become the ultimate best interest decision maker. And they would say whether or not parties have sufficiently and robustly enough gone through the exercise of ascertaining wishes and feelings, going through the best interest checklist in the MCA, and properly looked at options before making a determination on how the challenge will be settled. And we've talked, I think, before about um, best interest being central to the point of court of protection proceedings. But I think I think we skipped a bit, actually, almost because about the, the central pillar of capacity to all this as well, mm. uh, in terms of assessing that and establishing that right at the beginning before almost before you yes. move on to best interests. Absolutely. Yeah. So you can't engage the jurisdiction of the court of protection unless an individual lacks capacity. So that was, you would need capacity evidence in respect of the residence and accommodation domain. You'd also need in respect of conducting proceedings, which is something that the party representing P normally does or whoever actually brings a challenge, they will provide the evidence. And then you might find during the course of proceedings that depending on what the challenge relates to, you might need to get capacity evidence on use of social media, for example, or contact with others. So whilst we've talked there a very quick overview, about what a challenge involves. Some of the more complex ones could actually have quite a lot of different webs spinning out to different things, which means that you need to get quite a lot of evidence and you're absolutely right. Capacity is something which should always remain under review in these cases. And if at any point changes and the individual has capacity, then if everybody agrees and the court approves it, then the jurisdiction of the court of protection falls away and the section 21A challenge in effect becomes redundant because the individual can make their own decision and um, about where they want to live and the care to receive. Okay so we've talked a bit about capacity and about best interests and the process for section 21a. From a social care provider point of view um, I think in previous sessions we've talked about how they might be involved but this is the most likely we think um, court of protection process that a social care provider might become involved in and just to recap um, what sort of areas or how might a social care provider become involved in a section 21a challenge? Mm. So again thinking back to previous episodes we've always talked and it's always been something which I find still find a bit incredulous just how much the social care provider is actually on the periphery of proceedings. So the most common way that they'll be involved is via informal requests for information provision so that could be a commissioner asking the provider to provide daily care records, details of activity, charts, how often they access the community, what they like to be engaged with, what support they need in the community. And then that feeds into the commissioner's consideration of alternative options. The 
provider might be required to provide more formal evidence. So through the provision of witness statements and giving evidence orally at hearings, which we looked at in our last episode. Another common way is social care providers actually attending roundtable meetings. And around that table, you should have the social care provider because they know P best. They know what they're like on a day to day basis. They can feed back their um, views or what they're like, as I say, whether they're accessing community or their preferences for activity engagements or whether they actually like staying in their rooms or they prefer being communal areas, for example. They'll be around the table, as would be any family members who've got an interest in the welfare, along with the commissioners. So that's another way that their input is really very useful to have because you get a true sense for the individual. I think that's really helpful. Um, and I think that probably brings us to the end of, of talking about Section 21A. Yeah, thanks, Rachel and Liz. Um, well, I certainly found that helpful. And and I think that overview discussion on 21A challenges and court, court of protection um, was another way of explaining to social care providers about how they can be brought into um, court of protection proceedings. I'm looking forward already to the final episode where we'll look at liberty protection safeguards. Should any of our listeners have any comments, questions or suggestions for future episodes, please feel free to get in touch with me via email at j.baker at hempsons.co.uk.